regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi everyone, welcome to a new episode of Datacast, and today I have the pleasure to chat with Jesse Smith. Jesse J. Smith is a second year PhD student in the Department of Information Science at the University of Colorado Boulder. Her PhD research is focused on AI ethics, machine learning fairness and bias, and incorporating ethical speculation in the computer science classroom. Since uh, receiving her bachelor in software engineering, Jess works to engage in public scholarship about her research to encourage transparency and interdisciplinary dialogue about the unintended consequences of technology. And she's also the co-host and co-creator of the Radical AI podcast. So yeah, Jess, um, glad to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Uh, yeah, so I, I want to start our conversation just you know, discussing a little bit about your educational background. And so uh, you, you studied software engineering at California Polytechnic State University during your undergrad. What was it about software engineering that got your interest and what was your favorite course taken at Cal Poly? Yeah, so with software engineering, and when I use the word software engineering or the term software engineering, I'm kind of talking more broadly about computer science in general and the discipline of computer science. I think what really attracted me to this discipline was firstly my older brother because I was lucky enough that he got interested in coding at a really young age so he kind of encouraged me to pursue that too just because it's a relatively lucrative career and a stable career but then outside of that I think what really interested me the most with coding in general was just that you aren't really constrained to the physical world when you code it's almost like this magical space that exists in this like cloud. <laughs> and so you can kind of do whatever you want. You can create whatever you want and make whatever you want. So that always intrigued me, even when I hadn't learned any bit of coding yet. And then I also think that um, computer science and software engineering is one of the best ways to make a large impact on a lot of people. And even just working at like a big tech company, you might write a few lines of code that are used and put in front of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in a day. And so there's a lot of potential for big impacts, which is something I've always been interested in. And in terms of my favorite course at Cal Poly, um, which is like the slang for the university I went to, it was called professional responsibilities, which like sounds very unsexy for like a course name, but it's basically like computer science ethics is what I call it for shorthand. And of course I'm biased because that's like the field that I ended up going into, but that was what sparked my interest in changing my career in the first place. So shout out to Professor Nicholas Sekolaru at Cal Poly. I see, and it sounds like that class have targeted like a different perspective of computer science. Just, you know, it's in the name talking about the ethics uh, aspect of it. You know, you basically talk a lot about, or I guess like, you know, the importance of like getting out that technical mindset and taking into that, that ethical mindset, right? 
So I read this blog post that you wrote called Changing the Engineer's Mindset, and you argue that it is important to, to shift the engineering mindset away from only asking the how, but instead must power and ask the why. So, you know, can you unpack that argument? And how does that relate to, you know, kind of the ethical realm of, you know, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah, so I love this article that I wrote because it, it has a little uh, soft spot in my heart just because it was the first article I ever wrote. <laughs> and when I say article, I should probably say blog more because these are really just my unfiltered thoughts that I'm putting into Medium. And now that I'm in academia, I kind of understand the difference between like opinion pieces and actual like academic peer-reviewed scholarship. So this is in no way peer-reviewed. It's kind of just my uh, tangential thoughts based off of this professional responsibilities class that I was in. But I think the biggest takeaway and my biggest argument in this piece was um, something that was introduced to me in that class. And the engineer's mindset is something that was originally introduced by James Moore, who's this philosopher. I think he's actually still around. And it's basically this idea that technologists and especially computer scientists, we tend to ask when we're given a problem, the first thing that we ask is how, how do we solve that problem? And so if I'm working for a, I don't know if I'm working for like a website development company and they tell me to add a new button to the page, the first thing I'll ask either my manager or myself is probably like, well, how am I going to do that? And we think, okay, well with website development, I mean, if you mess up a button, that's really not a big deal, but then you can ask yourself, well, okay, let's say I was working at like a defense company and they tell me I need to design some sort of algorithm that is helping us with our like nuclear warhead launches. And if the first question that I ask when I'm given that task is how do I build that, then it becomes a little bit more problematic. And so the argument here is saying, well, if we are always asking how first, then we are kind of leaning into what's called solutionism. And it's this idea that we're always assuming that there is a solution to something. And we're also assuming that technology is the best solution for that thing. And mm -hmm. instead, what I encourage people to do is ask why before asking how. And so why lets us have this ethical speculation in the mix. And so instead of just asking immediately, how do I solve this problem? We ask, well, why am I trying to solve this problem with technology? Is technology the correct way to solve this problem? Should I be thinking more critically about the unintended consequences of the technology that I'm creating on society? And also, should I be asking myself if, if this technology should even be created in the first place? Yeah, thanks a lot for giving some of those anecdotes and kind of really going to the potential you know, consequences if we don't really, you know, Asking the, the, the why statement, and I definitely agree, agree with you that suddenly something that's worth being raised time and time again as uh, more and more people are transitioning into becoming engineers. Also in college, you also spent two summers interning at GoDaddy as a software engineer. How, how was this you know, internship experience for you? Yeah, I should start off probably by saying, you know, this is not sponsored by GoDaddy. This is my, my pure thoughts coming from, uh, coming from the heart here. But I just had such a blast at those internships. I have nothing but kind things to say about GoDaddy and the people there and especially the people who are a part of the university hiring team. Yeah, I just I really think that those two internships were my first introduction into the tech industry and my first time really working in a large tech space, a large tech company space. 
it was just a great way for me to like dip my toes in the water and to see what that kind of career would look like. And unfortunately for the company, I, through that process, I kind of figured out that it wasn't really for me and that wasn't what I wanted to do, but it doesn't mean that I didn't have a great time and I, I didn't learn a ton because I did. I, I felt like I learned so much and I was really welcomed. And I, I think probably if I was to say one thing that really stands out to me about GoDaddy in particular with the way that they recruit and just kind of conduct their internships is they've put a lot of work into helping women specifically feel really comfortable and welcomed there. And that's pretty hard to do, especially for a company that's named GoDaddy. <laughs> like they have a lot of misogynistic roots. And so um, especially like if you remember the old like Super Bowl commercials that they would have, like they're kind of known for being a sexist company. Huge shout out to Blake Irving, the, I think he's two CEOs ago now of the company. He put a lot of work into just making sure that all of the company was really aware of the fact that they were seen as sexist and misogynist and that that needed to change if they were going to become the company that they wanted to be. And so I really felt that while I was there and interning under Blake. So yeah, that was, that was really amazing to experience. Yeah. Awesome. That, that sounds like you have a great time. And I'm just curious, like in terms of the the actual like technical knowledge, like what, what are some of the things that you learn that, that is new to you, you know, about like best practice in software engineering and front end or back end development, some of the stuff that you learn? Yeah, I mean, I feel like when I went to my first internship, I was basically like a baby when it comes to like knowing how the tech industry works and how like coding works. And I was put on a UI UX team. So I was working in React and um, mostly just doing yeah, creating like React uh, modules and like working with designers and things like that. I was doing very basic work. I didn't even know what Scrum was or Agile or Sprints. And so I learned a lot about like JavaScript and coding and React and creating like UI elements. But then I also learned kind of just how like large tech companies function at like a higher level and how they get tasks done, task management, um, like project managers and product owners and the coders and just how people collaborate on teams. And then in my second internship, I was with a different team up in Kirkland and I was working on um, microservices using the Vertex framework and Maven. And uh, that was like my first introduction to APIs and I got to create an API and um, write schemas. And uh, that was also just, I felt like I was a baby in that summer too, because I knew nothing about that stuff before. So kind of like the full front or the full stack from front end to back end to the in-between space of web development. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds like fantastic learning experience, you know, again, because you, you know, you try to be just, just as, absorb as, as much knowledge as possible, right? And um, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of full spectrum, full stack engineering was really helpful to kind of understand how the product going forward from the interface to how it works under the hood, yeah. Mm -hmm. And also at Carpoli, you spend a decent amount of time as a research assistant for the Ethics and Emerging Science Group. And in particular here, you examine the ethical implication of AI predictive policing system and survey some of the current role of fairness metrics for battling some of these algorithmic bias. You know, what have you learned from that research experience which impacts some of the work you do today? Yeah, so the, the Ethics and Emerging Sciences group at Cal Poly, that was the first group that I had ever really joined where I did real research because Cal Poly isn't like an R1 research institution. They're very much like a teaching university. 
And I was really interested in doing research and I'd been working with a few professors on like independent research, but I didn't really have any experience doing anything that was like typical academic research that involved writing grant proposals and getting funded and then writing academic papers and going through the peer review process. And this was my first experience having my eyes open to what that world looks like, which was really impactful for me. And it was interesting because I was um, the technologist on the team. So I was the person, I was like the computer science person and the ethics and emerging sciences group is based out of the philosophy department at Cal Poly. And so they were writing this grant to try to get funded to do a lot of research about the harms of predictive policing. And they all were philosophers and they came from this philosophy background. So it was just interesting for the first time um, having that interdisciplinary collaboration and then also being seen and respected as like the, the quote technologist of the group and like recognizing my role in the group of like informing them on what was actually like a realistic concern, what was something that computer scientists and data scientists can actually do about this problem and what's like unrealistic because there tends to be a little bit of a gap in communication between like social scientists and computer scientists sometimes when it comes to thinking about like solutions to these problems. And so the, the whole experience in general was just, yeah, really eye-opening, just working with people from a different background. And then I think that was also kind of the first time I realized that some of the most motivated people that I have met in the AI ethics space, in the machine learning fairness space, and in this like responsible tech space, the really motivated people seem to be the people who don't come from a computer science background, but actually the people who come from like the social sciences, the humanities, anthropology, and you know all of the like non-technical uh, disciplines. And so it's interesting because usually when I talk to computer scientists about these issues, they kind of like not always laugh in my face, but sometimes they do laugh in my face. And so to talk to people who just like feel so passionately about it, that was really, really nice. And, and I think it, really influenced me um, in the future because now when I do my work, I really seek out those people who are like intrinsically motivated when it comes to these issues that I'm interested in. And a lot of them aren't computer scientists. Some of them are, but, but a lot of them aren't. Awesome. And also, can you just give a very brief overview of like what is predictive policing, you know, at the 20,000 foot level? Yeah, totally. Uh, so predictive policing is basically a way for police departments to try to police more efficiently. And so they'll take in a lot of historical criminal data from a certain location and they'll try to use that data to create a model that's going to basically predict what areas are most likely to have crime and when so that they can send more police into that area whenever they think that a crime is probably likely to occur. And the goal is, of course, to try to reduce crime in places that have a lot of criminal activity. But unfortunately, what ends up happening is they tend to find that the spots that are already over-policed and over-surveilled for various reasons, a lot of them having to do with racism and like systemic oppression, a lot of those areas will come up as like red flags on these models. And so more police will be sent there, which as we all know, if more police are present in an area, there's a greater likelihood that crime is going to be reported just because there are more police to report crime. And so when more crime is reported there, it's fed back into the algorithm, which makes the algorithm think that that's also still more of a hot spot, which means more police are sent there. And it kind of creates this feedback loop of continued oppression and racism that isn't really solving like the root of the problem. So that's mm -hmm. kind of like the high level overview. 
Thanks a lot for clarifying that big picture onto these technologies. Last summer, we went to Colombia to intern for a data journalism startup called Database Co. Colombia. And you uh, researched the impact of open data to better corruption and uh, build trust between the public and the government. And you also wrote two blog posts reflecting on this experience. Why is open data valuable in places like Colombia? What are some of the obstacles that stand in the way of open data movement? And uh, what are some of your recommended resources for people who are interested in learning how to use data science to create social impacts? Oh, yeah, these are all big questions. <laughs> yeah, Colombia is a really interesting use case for data and open data. And I didn't know this when I originally went to Colombia. So I, I actually went to Colombia to teach yoga, which I think we'll talk about in a little bit. And then I ended up meeting uh, John Oliver Coffey, who was creating or he was running this startup that was, uh, it's called Data Pico. And it's like this data journalism startup where they basically are hired out to take in a bunch of data and then inform the public about like what that data means. So it's like journalism, but using data as like a way to visualize it and make things more interesting and accurate for the public. And uh, when I originally went to Santiago de Cali, where he's located with his team, I wanted to meet up with him and just see what he was doing and how that was working. And most of the projects that the team was working on were actually being, they were outsourced from the US. So they were doing projects that were for the US, probably because that, you know, living in Colombia, the like cost of employment's like a little bit lower. And so I'm sure the US was just trying to find like people who weren't inside or the companies that were in the US were probably trying to find other organizations that were outside of the US to do this for them so they could save a buck or two maybe. But I was less interested in doing things that had to do with the U.S. just because I had left there for a reason. And so I was more interested in, in diving into what the state of data was in Colombia and specifically in Santiago de Cali because um, I had all the people in this startup had connections with the government there. And the government actually had just launched two years earlier this platform called the Datos Abiertos platform, which stands for open data. And I was really interested in how they went about opening that and why they were wanting to make their data more open and how the platform was going if people were using it. So I basically ended up spending the whole summer not working for Data Pico at all, just having John, the founder of this startup, uh, introduce me to like everyone he knew in this community, which was just like such an amazing experience. If, if you ever go to Colombia, uh, definitely check out Santiago de Cali. The people are amazing. But what I learned was that even though the government was providing a platform for open data that didn't solve pretty much any of the problems that were created with or it wasn't solving the problems that they were hoping to solve with this platform and so really what was happening was they had very very small amounts of data sets like only a few data sets that were not really annotated or cleaned or checked for validity by anybody and they weren't being used by anybody <laughs> and so they were it wasn't really beneficial for them to be spending so much time on this open data platform unless they like changed it a little bit to actually make it useful for people and so what I did was just kind of um, do a deep dive on like well why do we want open data in the first place what can we do with open data and how can we like leverage open data to help battle some of these problems that um, are happening in, in Santiago de Cali specifically, because that's where I was. And so at like a high level, the reason why open data is valuable, especially in places like Colombia and like other emerging markets is because open data is basically synonymous with transparency. 
And so if a government especially is open about what they're doing through their data or is open about what's happening in the country through data, then they're being really transparent about what's going on to the people. And the more transparent a government is to their people, the more trust that there can be between the governing body and the populace. And so the more trust that there is from the people, the more progress that the country can make. And a lot of this progress has to do with anti-corruption in places that have a lot of governmental corruption. And so Colombia, I think, is like relatively infamous for having corrupt politicians <laughs> as a part of their government. And so um, one like specific example of this from when I was in Cali that I encountered was when I was trying to get data about all of the criminal like the criminal history and the crime rates of what's going on there. And Cali especially is like notorious for uh, really high homicide rates. Like it's one of the highest homicide rates in the world. And it has been for a long time. And a lot of people don't believe that the crime is actually going down, but the numbers show that crime is going down, but people don't believe it because nobody believes the data that's out there. And the problem too is that when I was trying to find these like cr crime rates and all the data about what's going on, there are like four separate entities that exist in this city alone that are all tracking and reporting and holding on to that criminal history and that crime data. And they're not willing to share it with each other. And they're not willing to be transparent to the public about what's happening. And so there's like this immediate distrust between the police and the populace that already existed. But now it's like being exacerbated by the fact that they're unwilling to share the data of like what's actually going on. And then when it comes to corruption, especially the reason why open data can be super valuable for anti-corruption efforts is because if we build more trust between the governing body and the people, um, for example, if you think about like even just spend like how much money you spend on the budget, if the government is really transparent about how much money they're spending from their budget on certain resources, then once the people start to build that trust and once the governing body is less able to lie to the people, then it automatically lowers corruption. And corruption has an exact, uh, I mean, proportional ratio to, to GDP. And so the less corrupt a country is, the more their GDP raises. And so if we can build more trust between the government and the people, then uh, we can also help the economy of a country too. So there's a lot of like really broad, higher implications to open data in general that start from transparency and lead towards trust and anti-corruption. And then to, to continue, this is kind of a monologue here now, but to continue. So some of the obstacles that, that stand in the way of, of open data is at least some of the obstacles that I encountered. Uh, first, I mean, there's just too many people that are collecting data that aren't willing to share it. And that happens everywhere. There's a lot of uh, data uh, obfuscation. <laughs> and then uh, outside of that, if, even if people are collecting data and deciding to share it, they are collecting it poorly. They have um, no shared or standardized data schemas that are being used like globally. So there's not really any like global standardization of like data collection. And so there's a lot of inaccuracies in the data when it's collected too. And then to top that off, um, there's just so much missing data. And when there's so much missing data, there's 
a lot that's not being told about the stories and the conclusions that we're making from the data we're seeing. And so this leads to a lot of people being told that there's this like objective truth, like crime rates are going down somewhere. But then if there's so much missing data, we can't take that data and that analysis and that conclusion as objective. We can't take it as a fact because there's too much data missing for us to draw that conclusion. So that leads to like misinformation. Yeah. I think like at the conclusion for like your blog post about open data, you did mention that it's, you know, you, I, I guess like you did raise the question is what is stopping some of the skilled workers from more developed countries like the US, for example, to coming to, you know, developing nations like Colombia, for example, to house the government and, and, and start up fulfilling some of these projects. So why do you think, you know, that's a problem? Yeah, it's an interesting, almost like a double-edged sword because <clears throat> there are a lot of people who know how to code who are in countries like the U.S. who are looking for more fulfilling work. And they could easily probably, I mean, maybe not during COVID, but post-COVID, they could fly down to a country like Colombia that doesn't have a lot of data infrastructure and they could help start these movements and help with like the open data platform that's going on in small communities. But there's like a little bit of, it's somewhat problematic to think that that's like the solution. It's almost like a very... It's almost like a colonization problem uh, because it's like we're saying, oh, yeah, these people from these Western countries have the ability to take their knowledge and their opportunity and bring it to these other countries who need us and we can solve all your problems. And I don't think that's a very good mindset to have. I think what's what's better and what I learned um, through my time in Colombia, especially is that it's more important to educate the people who live in these communities and who know these communities and to give them the opportunities and the tools and the resources that they would need to start creating this change themselves. And that was why I organized and led uh, this workshop series in Cali as my last week there to teach some people, um, I think it was like a few dozen people who signed up for the workshop to teach them how to code and to teach them like the basics of data science and data visualization, data journalism, mm -hmm. and the importance of open data and basically what they could do to start some of these projects in their communities. And I think that's a much more powerful solution to this problem. Yeah. And it's probably going to be a more sustainable solution as well, you know, because mm -hmm. people can re-educate the, the next class of people, taking some of the knowledge that you learn from you and can communicate that directly with the people in the community. Right. Mm-hmm. Since 2019, you have been a PhD student in um, the Department of Information Science at UC Boulder, uh, where you uh, focus on value trade-offs in technology and machine learning ethics. What motivated you to pursue a, a doctorate degree, and uh, how has your experience been there so far? Yeah, I was actually thinking about this question quite a bit recently. Um, it's important to ask why I'm doing this when you're in a PhD program constantly, because sometimes you wonder if it's worth it. And I, I think that I never actually planned on going into graduate school when I was in my undergraduate. For the first three years, I actually was wondering if I would even finish my undergrad in, in software engineering. So that was never really my intention until my last year in my program, I started really getting interested in these issues of fairness and bias and accountability um, in machine learning, especially. And I realized that if I wanted to go into that field, 
it wasn't going to be something I could just like go and apply for a regular job for and like interview. I pretty much had to become an expert in the field if I was going to find a job or a career in this space that was like sustainable. And the only way to really become an expert on a topic that's as niche as this is to get a degree or a doctorate in it. And there, there's probably other ways. I shouldn't say the only way, but I think that was probably the the easiest track that I could see myself doing. Yeah, so I decided to pursue, or at least I had decided to apply to pursue a PhD against all of my friends and family's wishes. They all thought I was crazy for doing that and adamantly told me that that was probably not a good idea, especially since I was leaving a relatively lucrative career. And every day of my career, or of my PhD program, I'm about to start my second year next week. So every day of the program so far, I have actually, I've had to like pinch myself sometimes to, to ask myself if, if this is actually what I'm doing in a good way, uh, because I honestly love it. I love every minute of it. And I know everybody's PhD programs and experiences are, are different and some people's are um, very intense and it's, uh, it's just too much. And I, I definitely understand that because it is a lot and I do spend almost all of every day like doing my work because it it is a lot of work but i find that i'm doing for my work what i love and what i do for work now is what i used to do outside of work just for fun and so the fact that i can do that as my work now is it's a little bit unreal and and i just feel really fortunate and grateful to have found the right program and the right advisors in the right department for me yeah, and can you, uh, I guess, just elaborate a little bit more on, on UC Boulder and, and your department and, uh, I guess, you know, some of the lab you involved with and uh, the general um, academic community within the university? Yeah, Yeah. so um, University of Colorado Boulder, I'm in the, the information science department here, and I'm advised, I'm co-advised, which is a little bit non-typical for PhD students. So one of my advisors is Casey Fiesler, and she is in charge of the Internet Rules Lab. And there, um, there's so much research being done in this lab, so I don't want to uh, do a disservice by trying to sum it all up. But my intersection with that lab is that there's a lot of like technology ethics work being done, and there's a lot of work being done uh, in terms of like creating a curriculum to include more ethics and ethical spe- speculation and social sciences into the computer science classroom. So that's a lot of work that I'm doing with Casey right now. And then the other lab that I'm in is with my other co-advisor, Robin Burke. And it's called that recommender systems lab. And there is a little bit more of like the computer science work um, that I'm doing. And so he's specifically focused on like recommender systems and the algorithms that we use to create recommendations and how we can make them more fair for multiple stakeholders. And that's, you know, the stakeholders being like the users of recommendations, the consumers, the people who provide items to be recommended, the system that's creating the recommendations itself. And so in both of those labs within the information science department, they're, they're two of like, I think maybe a dozen labs that exist in this department. And I just have nothing but good things to say about, about CU and about my advisors and, and this department in general. I think I got really lucky. I've heard some horror stories about some departments and some PhD programs, but uh, I think the community that I've stumbled into here is incredibly unique and super welcoming and warm. And I, I'm just such a fan that they never, ever encourage competition. It's always about collaboration and support. 
And I think that's something that I found to be really important for me when pursuing a PhD program. And I know a lot of people do too. So yeah, nothing but good things to say about, about the department and the program that I'm in. We will talk a little bit about some of those research that you've done in, in more details. But first, I just want to go in over a couple of like, I guess, blog posts that you've written in the topic of technology ethics. You know, last year you wrote this one, it's called The Charlie Problem Isn't Theoretical Anymore. And this post presents a framework that you call anti-technical to assist with ethical decision-making. And you also sort of emphasize some of the importance of transparency and explainability with regard to using machine learning. And um, you actually propose to use ethics as a business metric. Yeah, so can you just unpack some of the key takeaways from this blog post? At the technical framework, this is like the the name that I tried to come up with to like merge the word ethical and like technical because I thought there was like something there, but it kind of just ended up being more like word jumbled than I than I intended it to be. This is basically a framework that is promoting like anti-techno solutionism. And earlier I kind of introduced solutionism um, when I was talking about the engineering mindset. So just as a recap, solutionism is this idea that a lot of technologists tend to have, techno solutionism specifically, is when we assume that like technology is always going to be able to solve problems and that technology is like the best solution to problems, including societal problems. And so with the ethotechnical framework, I was basically trying to um, encourage us to push back on that solutionism trap, um, which was introduced by Cynthia Rudin. So I did not coin that term. And uh, it's basically, uh, I was just kind of arguing that um, sometimes technology is not always the correct solution for something. And sometimes technology can actually be harmful if we try to use it to solve problems without thinking critically about what the unintended consequences might be. And so specifically, I, I was encouraging everyone, especially like coders and technologists to think with an interdisciplinary mind when trying to solve a problem with technology. And one of the ways to do that is to assess the value trade-offs of some of our design decisions when we code something. And so I used the trolley problem as a framework here and um, like specifically the the example of like self-driving cars and in the case of an unavoidable collision, if there's like somebody who's a coder on a team for Tesla, for example, who is deciding if a self-driving car must at like an unavoidable collision either kill the driver or like a baby that's crossing the, the road, what is the car going to do? Because as coders, we have the ability to make this decision in today's day and age and even more so in the future. And so my, I guess my ask of the readers of this post was to say that we can't just assume that there's a best solution. We have to assume that whatever decision we make is going to have consequences and often those consequences will benefit some and harm others. And so we have to understand what the trade-off is going to be and who will be harmed with the design decisions that we make. And it was sort of just like a call for intentionality. So to make sure like, okay, if we are going to code something, if we do make a design decision, we don't have to do it perfectly. We're not going to be able to do it perfectly. We're not going to be able to cause zero harm if we're creating technology. That's just impossible. But what we can do is we can understand what the trade-offs might be and we can be more intentional with the decisions that we're making. Absolutely. Thanks for just unpacking those, some of those arguments. And then given your interest in social science and computer science, you wrote another post, this one is called How Technology Shapes Society. 
and you argue that well, your this argument is kind of like related to some of the things that you already talk about. But essentially, you said that um, computer scientists must be educated to cope with social responsibility and equipped with the correct tools to do so. Uh, yeah. So you know, what was the premise behind that statement, and uh, anything that kind of going around some of these tools that you try to refer to? Yeah, so full disclosure, I, I wrote this blog out of anger <laughs> because I had just gotten, maybe I shouldn't say anger, maybe I should say passion. <laughs> It's a little bit more optimistic word for that. Uh, I had just gotten a rejection from a fellowship that I had applied for for um, money for to fund my PhD research. And I was rejected because one of the reviewers of the application who I'm assuming is like a computer scientist, they said that my proposed research on like value trade-offs in machine learning sounded more like a social science project than a computer science project. And so this, it did make me angry. So I will still use the word angry, but it, it kind of made me realize that one of the problems with the field of like responsible technology is the fact that a lot of computer scientists and technologists are a little bit unwilling to include social science in their discipline. And they're very, very adamant about like bucketing disciplines and making sure that there is a, a hard boundary between like social science, humanities, ethics, philosophy, pretty much every discipline and like computer science. And I think there's a lot of danger and harm in that, which is which why I made that big claim that, you know, computer scientists must be educated to code with social responsibility. They must be equipped with the correct tools to do so because I am not willing to accept that computer science and social science are separate. But I argue in this blog that they're so intrinsically intertwined that to think that they're separate is only going to cause us harm. And so the premise, I guess, and like the main takeaway here was what I've already said probably many times in this interview even, is just that computer science education needs to include ethical speculation in the curriculum. And it doesn't necessarily need to include so much social science that computer scientists come out with two degrees, but it needs to include enough for computer scientists to be able to make ethical decisions in their jobs and enough interdisciplinary collaboration for them to feel comfortable going to people who are domain experts who aren't computer scientists. Right, definitely. And, and that also kind of speaks to your own personal experience, right? Like you originally were studying CS, but taking that professional responsibility class and you know, uh, doing research in this department, uh, philosophy department, and interface with people from a variety of disciplines allows you to cope with social responsibility. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Okay, so now let's switch here to discuss a little bit of some of your uh, academic research, uh, and, and in particular in recommended system. So a particular publication that you work on earlier this year is called Investigating Potential Factors Associated with Gender Discrimination in collaborative recommended system. In this work, your team investigated a couple of factors that could be associated with the discriminatory performance of the recommendation algorithms for women versus men. So what were some of those factors and what are the implications for recommendation technologies? 
Yeah, so I'm going to speak to this paper at a high level just um, because I know recommender systems is a pretty niche discipline. And so I, I don't ever expect that the people who are even listening to this interview right now would understand some of the jargon that is said in this field. So at, at a high level, this paper, um, which I was like the third author on, so this is not my work entirely. This is uh, Himan Abdullapuri and Masood Maori's work. And they were basically exploring what is going on with recommenders and recommendation systems that seem to be more accurate for men than they are for women and why that might be. One of the factors, or I guess the the implied factors, like the hypothesized factors for what goes into this discrimination and this inaccuracy or this like gap in accuracy is that females profiles on a lot of these platforms that create recommendations they tend to be less diverse. So if we think about something like a movie recommendation platform, um, if I was like a stereotypical female on this platform, I might only listen to, or I might only watch certain kinds of movies in like one very specific genre. And so if I only watch movies of that one genre, then my profile is less diverse because the recommender only really knows what I like to watch based off of that one genre. And so it's going to assume that's the only genre that I like. And then the other problem that tends to come up is that um, a lot of women's profiles in these recommendation systems are just smaller and less filled out. And that that would be the difference between like my male friend um, watching like hundreds of videos or hundreds of movies on like Netflix or something and me having only ever watched five. And just because of the way that like machine learning models work, if I'm giving less data to the model, it's going to inherently be less accurate for me than it will for someone who's given more data to the model. So those were like the hypothesized factors that we assumed were creating this discrimination. And then when diving a little bit deeper into that, we realized that that actually wasn't the only problem. And there was still a gap in accuracy between recommendations for males and females, even when taking those two factors into account. And the conclusion that we drew was that there's more work to be done here because this was a shorter paper. So uh, we didn't really figure out a solution yet. And this is still actively being worked on, but it's basically a call to action for people in this space to assess their recommender systems and to see if they can figure out why this is happening and what we can do to potentially solve this issue, especially because when you think about recommendations, people tend to think about movie recommendations, music recommendations, Amazon item recommendations, things like that. And so they're saying, well, there's not really much at stake there. You know, if I have like a less accurate movie recommendation than somebody else, like, okay, fine. You have to look more for your movies. You watch a bad movie and you waste a little bit of time. There's not really all that much at stake there. But then when you think about where recommendations are going with things like job recommendation or like housing recommendations. If there's any inaccuracy in the system there or discrimination in those systems, there's a lot more at stake, especially if that discrimination is sexist or racist or, or what have you. Really the main takeaway was just that this is a problem and we all need to come together as a community to start looking for ways to make this better. Yeah, thanks for emphasizing on some of those problems. The next research, I guess this one is also quite intertwined with what you already mentioned. This paper is called Exploring User Opinions of Fairness in Recommend System. The study explored the concept of fairness in the context of recommendation, particularly when there are multiple stakeholders. What are some of the findings that surprise you and how will this research direction be carried out in the future? 
Yeah, so this is research that's being um, led by Nassim Samboli, also in, in that Recommender Systems Lab. And what we've been working on, right now we're writing the full paper on our results from this. So the paper that I wrote earlier was just a position paper to kind of outline some of our initial findings. And I think what surprised me the most with these interviews that we did was uh, just how much disagreement people have about what it means for something to be fair. It's interesting because we conducted interviews with people who have a bunch of different kinds of backgrounds. Some people are coders, most people weren't coders. And we asked all of them what their experience has been with like recommendations, um, specifically with like Amazon recommended items or like Netflix movies or Facebook recommended news, things like that. And we asked them what they thought it meant for those recommendations to be fair. And in asking them this question, we got a different answer pretty much every single time. And so our, our main takeaway from that piece of our results was that if we can't, as people, as humans individually agree on what it means to treat people fairly algorithmically in recommendations, then how could we ever write an algorithm, like a recommendation algorithm that is supposed to be fair I'm using air quotes here, <laughs> that is supposed to be fair, quote, unquote, if we all disagree on what it means for something to be fair. There's kind of this, I guess, need for a reckoning in, in the recommender systems community to understand that even if we do take fairness metrics into account, even if we do optimize for specific fairness goals, it doesn't mean that we're creating a perfectly fair recommender. It means that whoever designed these fairness goals and whoever designed this algorithm who created these fairness metrics might think we're creating a perfectly fair recommender, but there's always going to be a trade-off and what's fair for some people might be unfair for others. So it's kind of actually the same takeaway as what I was saying before, but really it just there's a need for awareness about what those fairness trade-offs are going to be. And there's a need for greater intentionality and transparency between the system and the users. I see. What are some of the research that you're working on at the moment? And uh, I guess they plan to explore more in general next year as, as a PhD student. Yeah, so I'm uh, still working a little bit on this recommender systems fairness work. We're um, going to finish up this paper in the next month. And then outside of that, I am working a little bit on um, like recommender systems bias work. So tackling things like popularity bias, and that has a lot to do with the scholar I mentioned before, Himan Abdullapuri. And then outside of that, with, the, with Casey Fiesler, my other advisor, I'm working a lot on incorporating ethics and ethical speculation in the computer science classroom. And so I am finishing up a survey study and about to send that out to a lot of educators of computing classes, just to kind of figure out what the barriers are and what the stigmas are when it comes to incorporating like ethics and social science in the computer science classroom. And then also doing some like systematic lit reviews on what's been done in this space and what people uh, and what educators tend to do and how they teach ethics in the classroom and what the pros and cons of that pedagogy is. I feel like I'm using a lot of jargon right now. I hate academic jargon. I'll try to keep it more, <laughs> less, less academic centric. Yeah, so a lot, of, a lot of research in the works and kind of all just centering responsible and ethical technology and specifically like AI and machine learning. Since April 2020, you have co-hosted the Radical AI podcast 
which highlights radical ideas, radical people, and radical stories in the multitude of space that currently make up AI development, application, and coverage. You know, I guess like what are some of the underrated issues of AI in societies that you have discovered from this conversation through this podcast? Yeah, it's been a, a journey. <laughs> so the, the Radical AI podcast launched in mid-April of this year, and it's the end of August right now. So it's been a few months. And I hesitate to use the word underrated when it comes to issues of, of AI and society. And um, that's because I think, and I'm biased here when I say this, but I think that there are no issues that are underrated. What I will say is that the issues that people tend to talk about and center are usually like fairness, bias, and accountability and uh, transparency too. I should throw that in there. And so um, those are things that I think have been talked about a lot and a lot of books have been written about them and a lot of panels have been discussed about about those issues. Uh, Some of the other topics that have come up in this process and with interviews with different researchers and and people that are situated in this space. I actually wrote down a list here just because there's there's so many, <laughs> but I'll just kind of run through some of them. So there's racial representation in the tech field, surveillance and privacy, value trade-offs that I've kind of mentioned before, AI for social good, ethical design practices, labor and precarious work, the harms of classification, data objectivity versus data subjectivity, racism, sexism, algorithms of oppression, using science fiction for ethical speculation, interdisciplinarity and collaboration. And then the one that is very applicable to me and my work is teaching social science to computer science students. Yeah, thanks a lot for that wonderful list. And uh, a lot of those definitely, like you already mentioned, is, is not been obvious when we think about AI societies, but they definitely related to our conversation at some point. Beside the podcast, you also co-host the Sci-Fi in Real Life, which is a YouTube channel that links some of the iconic scenes from science fiction to contemporary tech issue throughout this process. What have been some of your favorite or your top three favorite videos made today? I was thinking about this earlier today. I had to go back to the YouTube channel to remember what videos we've made. If you can't tell, I, I really like public scholarship. So I'm a big fan, podcaster, YouTuber, uh, content creator, all that stuff. So I should also plug um, while I'm here, if, if you are interested, um, going back to the Radical AI podcast really quickly, if you are interested in learning about some of the topics that I mentioned or you want to see more about the project, um, definitely check out our website, radicalai.org, and everything that you might need is on the website. And um, also don't ever hesitate to get in touch if you're curious about some of those topics and you want to be pointed in the right direction. So Radical AI and Sci-Fi in Real Life are actually tangential gentle to each other. So they're kind of similar projects, but also very different because sci-fi in real life uses science fiction stories to like give us this lens to think about like the way that technology impacts society in a way that we might have a harder time doing in our like world that we exist in today. So it kind of takes us into a headspace that's like fictional and not real so that we can think about where technology might go. And it, it's like a much easier space to have like ethical speculation. And so I think my favorite episode so far of that show is it's called Dying to be Alive. And in that video, we analyzed the movie Transcendence. It was an interesting movie, had very bad reviews. 
but we talked all about uh, post-death AI and digital identity and, and really like what it means to be a person and whether like an AI can be a person, whether our data is representative of ourselves, whether it is ourselves. And that episode featured David Ryan Polgar and, and Katie Gatch as guest hosts. And so that, that was a really interesting conversation. There are some other favorites that I have. I'll just briefly run through those because I know we're running short on time. So the other favorites I have are Living on the Edge, where we analyzed The Martian. And that was about tech company accountability and transparency and keeping up with like the rapid um, tech growth and how policy can keep up with, with technological growth. And then my last favorite was uh, the Black Mirror meta episode, where I, I actually, with my co-host Shamika, we got to interview our PhD advisor, Casey Fiesler, and talk to her about how we can use Black Mirror, the show, as a way to teach computer scientists and technologists, like social scientists, and how to teach them how to like ethically speculate about the technologies that they're creating. Yeah, thanks, thanks a lot for sharing, and I'll be sure to include the links to the YouTube videos in the, in the show notes. So... Listeners can, can watch them, our pleasure. So I want to conclude our conversation on a light note. And besides your academic and professional activities, you have done a variety of volunteer work from uh, teaching yoga and meditation to kids and adults across the continents to being an ESL teacher in Colombia for different age groups. How did such life experience contribute to your mission of cultivating positive social impacts? Oh, this is a deep question, James. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I was thinking hard about this one um, before. It's, it's it's kind of a tough question to ask. It's like, what motivates you to do the work that you do and why? Yeah, so I, I think my experiences with teaching yoga and meditation specifically, they've made me really think about where I was born and what opportunities I was born into and really like the privilege that I was born into. And there, especially with traveling and teaching um, in Colombia and the places that I was in in Colombia, I had to have this like reckoning with myself and accepting that I am not responsible for the privilege and opportunity that I was born into. It's not like my fault that I was born into it versus someone else. So, so kind of just like accepting that part of me, but then recognizing that there's something that I should do with that. And I shouldn't just take for granted the opportunities that I have around me. And so um, it kind of just really motivated me even more to do something with the privilege that I was born into and to do something with the opportunities that are being given to me. And so um, I really, I try to make my work a way to utilize that opportunity and a way to try to make positive change for other people who might have been born in a place um, where there's less opportunity than what I've had. And uh, I think, I don't know if this is a quote or not, this is probably a quote from someone, but I really like the idea of leaving the world a better place than it was when I entered it or at least trying to. And I think that's something that I constantly try to come back to when I ask myself why I'm doing the work that I'm doing. Yeah, thanks a lot for you know sharing that personal experience. And I think that definitely resonates a lot with, with a lot of people, including myself. So yeah, Jesse, at this point of our conversation, I want to move on to the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions. And then uh, yeah, you can just give your answers for the listeners. 
number one, name three people in the machine learning ethics universe whose work you admire. So the top three people that come to my mind are Sophia Noble, Kathy O'Neill, and Ruha Benjamin. Second question, uh, name one book that you could recommend for people to develop a better ethical mindset. If I'm just speaking about an ethical mindset and without technology at all, I would say the book that I would recommend for everyone to read is called The Courage to be Disliked. And then lastly, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the aspiring machine learning ethics researchers on Twitter. What could you tweet about? Oh, I wish I had prepared these last questions. I forgot about these. Oh, I'm thinking about a tweet that I wish I had seen a few years ago. Honestly, maybe just three words. You've got this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's a great way to conclude our, our conversation. Yeah, so, so Jess, I really enjoy our chat. Just learning a little bit about your background in software engineering, your interest in ML ethics, uh, and sort of bridging the gap between social science and computer science, your understanding of open data and advocacy for the open data movement, your current academic research at Intersect, sort of recommend system and AI fairness, as well as some of these activities in terms of the podcast and the videos that constantly uh, educate people on some of these radical ideas that are making a huge impact in, in the tech and machine community that people should be aware of. And uh, yeah, I'll be sure to include all the resources and links in the show notes so uh, you know people can have a chance to learn more about some of your work and uh, reach out if uh, they have any question so yeah just uh, appreciate it and uh, i hope you enjoy the rest of your day great thanks so much for having me on james well that's the wrap for another episode of datacast hopefully you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.